4,000 days, chapter four, hell. 9 a.m. Wednesday, October 11th of 1978. Major Vahara announces himself as an immigration official and for a moment I relax. My body is stunned back into a state of panic by a crunch to my stomach from his walkie-talkie. I collapse on the floor and know that my life in the world it lives in is suddenly horribly out of my control. Thai policemen carrying guns are tearing the room apart, babbling things I cannot understand. There is shouting from somewhere else in the hotel, and I am dragged by both arms out into the hallway and down to Paul's room. He's being pressed against the wall with guns at his head while other policemen are standing over the red suitcase. They urgently chorus something towards Vara, and he squeezes my face until I feel my cheekbones will break. This suitcase has a code at lock? Tell me the number. I tell him the number is 265, and another policeman opens the lock. Insane with fear, I stupidly cling to the hope that they will close the case without looking under the flimsy blue towel that covers the 24 bags of grade 4 heroin. There is a grotesque silence in the room as the towel is removed. I want to cry, but my body is so terrified it cannot manage even so simple a task. I know I'm dying. Farah is in a state of ecstatic rage. He marches me to the balcony and holds my head over the edge, forcing me to stare out over the bustling streets and filthy lanes below. See the people down there, he barks, shaking my head like a toy. You can forget them now. None of them can help you. Forget about your embassy. Forget about a lawyer. He twists my head around until my eyes are inches from his. And from the blackness beyond, I hear the words. Mine is the only face you are going to see for the next month. We are handcuffed and taken down through the hotel lobby. Incredibly, as we pass the front desk, the concierge presents us with our bill. We are, driven at, we are driven at high speed through the streets of Bangkok until we arrive at a large concrete building. Inside, we are told to sit and say nothing until we were spoken to. There is a table placed in front of us and the heroin is spread out on the table. Photographers arrive. The hostility of the police is astonishing, particularly Vara. Through bursting with hate for us, he almost appears to be having some kind of orgasm. He paces like a mad dog. I learned that he is, in fact, known by his name. Mad dog Vara. He begins to shout in my face, telling me he has been waiting for me since the beginning of the year, that he knows that it was me who tried to smuggle heroin out of Thailand on a ship in February. He has been watching me since I arrived at Bangkok eight days ago. Now he has me. He says I will be shot to death by a firing squad, that he is required by law to do this to me. I don't know how to react to this news. It seems ridiculous. But the other policemen in the room do not react at all. I declare that I want a lawyer. A mad dog goes berserk. He screams that we have no lawyer. He screams that we have no rights at all. We are filth and we are going to die. He rages as he speaks, his words fueling his own temper. He pulls out a pistol and slams it hard onto the table. Do you want to die now, he bellows? Do you? He leans towards me until, once again, his eyes are all of the world that I can see. Your life is worth nothing to me. His eyes are so black. He truly means this. He is not human. This can't be real. Every bone in my body is weakened from terror, and I want to sob because my life means nothing. I can feel Paul shaking beside me. I can hear mad dogs shouting at him, but I can't hear what he's saying because I'm listening to the sounds of my own fear, which is making a strange, fluffy noise in my head. I wonder what my mother's doing right now at this moment. Mad dog wants old man, the old man. He says he knows that the old man is behind this affair. 
Both Paul and I insist that this is untrue, but Mad Dog angrily calls us liars. He says he's been watching us and the old man do business. He says that if we admit he is the leader, he may be charged with nothing but unlawful possession of an illegal substance and we will survive. But if we try to protect the old man with lies, we will be charged with collaboration of possession of heroin for the purpose of attempted export and sale, then we will die. Madoff tells us that we will be murdered upon Article 27, a military law that provides for immediate execution without trial. He has murdered Betty drug criminals this way and will be glad to do so again. All he has to do is petition the Prime Minister of Thailand, Kringastak Kamadaad, and wait for his reply. It shouldn't be long now, for he has already sent the cable. Mandog leaves the room and returns with two documents written in Thai. He places them on the table in front of us and taps on them with a thick wooden ruler with a strip of metal embedded in it. He tells us to sign them, and I ask for someone to translate the documents. Mandog starts to laugh. He tells the other policemen what I have said, and they laugh too. Then he walks behind me and stands close. He's tapping me softly on the shoulder with the royal ruler. He leans down towards me, and I can feel his breath on my ear. You think you're pretty tough, don't you? I tell him I don't. Oh, yes, he whispers. You like to think you're pretty tough. Yes, you do. You don't want to sign this, do you? You think you're tough enough to survive in here, tough enough to survive me. Well, Mr. Warren, he sighs as he stands. I'll look after you. The rod cracks down on my head, and I nearly pass out. Mad Dog pushes my head down, pressing my head into the table with all of his weight. He leaves, and we are alone with the other Thai policemen. Paul and I try to talk, but we are beaten whenever we make a sound or move too close to each other. A Caucasian man enters the room with some documents. He says he is a representative from the embassy. I ask if I can see a lawyer, but he says there is no need for that at this time. He begins asking questions. State your full name. What's your date of birth? Who's your next of kin? He seems nervous and writes very slowly. After a time, he asks us if we would like to see a priest. Paul and I are both shocked and confused by the question and ask what he means. The look on his face is one of bewilderment, and he excuses himself, saying he will be right back. He's only gone for a few minutes, but I can hear him speaking with Mad Dog in the next room. Finally, he returns and sits down. He explains to, this, to us that we have been sentenced under Article 27 and are to be executed. My gut crashes and I nearly lose control of my bowels. I'm about to die. Everything I know and will ever know is about to stop. The representative leaves the room and we are left to wait for the execution. Mad Dog returns in a fury. He marches straight over to Paul and thrashes him, then picks him up off the floor and marches him to the door. He says something to, two other, to the two other policemen and they open the door to the yard outside. It is the first time we had seen, light, seen sunlight in hours. Mad Dog pulls out his gun, empties the chamber, and shows us the bullet. He says it is a dum-dum bullet, which makes a small hole when it goes into the body, an enormous hole when it comes out. He said he's going to use it on Paul now. But he is a sporty man, he says, and he hears Paul is a sporty man too. He will give Paul a chance. He will let him run for 100 yards before he shoots. If he misses, Paul is free. If he doesn't miss... Then he will say that Paul tried to escape. Mad Dog says it is more than a fair deal, as we are going to die anyway. Paul will not do it. 
Mad Dog brings his pistol down hard onto the back of Paul's neck and pushes him into the open doorway. He says that if Paul does not run, he will shoot him dead right there where he stands. He levels the gun at the side of Paul's head and cocks it. At the sound of the cocking hammer, Paul's body jerks and lurches backwards, but Mad Dog pushes him again into the doorway. Paul struggles backwards, and in a flash, the other policemen are shouting at him and pushing him back out into the sunlight. The shouting and struggling goes on for an eternity, and Paul is becoming terrified and violent. I know that he is about to be killed. I can't take this anymore. And I shout out that I will sign the document. The old man is marched in. He glares at us with this contempt as Mad Dog tells him that we have implicated him as the leader. The old man furiously protests his innocence. He tries to use his usual suave, and I can see that it is throwing Mad Dog into a murderous mood. But there are more policemen present now, some high-ranking, ties in a few officials from the Australian embassy, and violence will not be tolerated. It is now very late in the evening, and after a time, we are placed in chains and led outside to where a bus is waiting to take us to the police cells not far away. The old man is separated from Paul and I, no doubt, to keep us from collaborating our stories. There are no beds in the cell. Cells. Somehow I manage to sleep. I don't have any bad dreams. I don't need them. Every morning they come at 6.30 and take us to the police interrogation cells at the Drug Suppression Center or unit. We return at 8 or 9 at night. Sometimes there are embassy representatives present and Mad Dog cannot hurt us physically, so he breaks us emotionally. He's quite brilliant. He talks endlessly, repeating over and over that our lives are worth nothing, and I believe it. In the madness, I realize I am actually representing him as an interrogator, respecting him as an interrogator. I keep forgetting that this must be part of his psychological strategy. We are told that he has compiled a 200-page document which has been sent to the prime minister. A furthermore venomous request for our immediate execution. We no longer knew whether this will be going ahead today or whether it is a reality at all. To live with this spectra from one hour to the next is insanity. There are more documents Mad Dog wants us to sign. Day after day, he uses everything in his power to get us to do what he wants. One morning, he proceeds to tap me in the leg with the toe of his boot. The blows are weak, but as they continue for hours. When I go to stand up by the end of the day, I collapse. The muscle in my leg had been crushed. One morning, as we lie in our cells, a newspaper is pushed under the door, the Bangkok Post. The front page features two photos, one of a miserable-looking man being carried to the execution chamber. The other shows the chamber from the same angle, only now a coffin is being carried out. It is flanked by two praying monks. The caption underneath the two photos tells us of how the executioner will be using his gun again very soon for the three Australians arrested recently in Bangkok. Paul and I are emotionally exhausted. We can take no more of this hideous existence, and after talking about it for a time, we agree we will sh that we should try to kill ourselves that day. The only instrument at our disposal is a large water trough running along the wall of the cell. We decide that each will hold the other's head under the water until we are both still. We embrace each other firmly and say goodbye. It seems strange that six months ago we were strangers, yet here we are ending our lives within a few feet of each other.
on a small stretch of earth hundreds of miles away from our homes. We plunge our heads into the water, each forcing the other down with increasingly determined force, but gradually both of us start to resist the force of the other. After almost a minute, we simultaneously reel back out of the trough, gasping for air. We are going to have to live through this, no matter how dreadful it becomes. At last, we are visited by a lawyer appointed by the embassy. He tells us that it is unlikely the prime minister will agree to execution. By a stroke of light, Thailand has suffered violent flooding in the north, and the Australian government has been generous with aid. It would be politely imprudent for Kringasak Kamamad to slaughter any Australians right now. We will have a trial. Mandog is not happy about this and finds he must resort to stronger tactics to bend our spirit. One morning, he tells me he has something to show me and marches me down to the bathroom at the end of the errand interrogation room. Inside, I see a Thai prisoner in heavy jeans standing in a tub of water. He's what appeared to be electrical wires running between his nipples and his genitals. Dog has another policeman attach the two wires to a large battery. The Thai prisoner howls in pain and collapses into the water, where he begins to thrash about like a fish. Like some sort of insane artist, Dog turns to see how I am admiring his work. He tells me this will happen to me, too unless I comply with him. We are awoken one morning to be told that we are being moved from the police cells. The interrogation is over. We are going to court to be formally charged and then taken from there to a prison. I'm frightened of going to a Thai prison. I've heard they are despicable places. But right now I am simply relieved to be away from Mad Dog and his torment. My relief disintegrates when I hear the voice of a jeering Thai guard. Ha ha ha, you go monkey house.